I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This summer, uh, we have been uh, going through the, the, the Psalms and the teaching elders, myself and uh, Ben and Ransom and Jonathan, we've been choosing uh, different Psalms that are our favorite ones. And this morning we end this series and, and I finish it with Psalm 121, which like uh, the message last week that Ben brought, is an ascent psalm. There are many different types of psalms, and we've kind of covered this in previous messages, but this one is an ascent psalm. Uh, there's 15 ascent psalms in the book of Psalms. They begin in chapter 120, right before this. So this is the second of the 15. And they're called ascent psalms because the, the, the Israelites, as they would make pilgrimages to the city of Jerusalem, so for perhaps Passover or the Feast of the Tabernacles or other high holy days, they would be traveling from all around, but let's say they were coming from Galilee or from you know, another country. As they would make their way, they would be coming from lower elevations, low country like Florida, and they're making their way up to the Appalachia Mountains, so, so to speak, to give you an analogy. So the, as they're ascending, as they get into Judea, they are ascending in elevation. And Jerusalem, of course, is, is up on a mountain, and as they're ascending up those hills, uh, the pilgrims and the, tra- the paths would begin to converge. And so many of these psalms, the ascent psalms, they would begin to sing to one another. So uh, several of these psalms were meant to be sung uh, antiphonally, where perhaps one group on one side of a little valley or trail would sing uh, what we would see as verse 1 and 2, and the other group would maybe sing verse 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, and then maybe they'd all sing verse 7 and 8 in different ways like this. And this was part of their kind of their worship as they were preparing themselves for the festival that they were going to begin to observe when they arrived in Jerusalem. So these were ascent psalms. And this psalm is all about the little word help. Help. Now, I was tempted, really, really tempted for the benefit of all the baby boomers in here this morning to put together a little flashback video montage you know, help, I need somebody, help, not just anybody. There you got it, the Beatles, right? But I resisted, and I chose instead just to give you that little snippet of my singing prowess, right? And <laughs> which isn't very much. But you know, this song is all about help. And the main focus, of course, is upon God and how God is our helper. But it starts by saying something about us. In verse one, the very first application out of this passage, in verse one, I lift up my eyes to the hills, from where does my help come? The very first application out of this passage, we all need help. From, I lift up my eyes to the hills, from where does my help, where does my strength, where does my assistance, where does my support come? We all need help. There's an implied 
truth in this verse. Now, now I chose this psalm. You know, these are supposed to be psalms that were meaningful to us. I chose this psalm like I did Psalm 1 when I started this summer summer series, my first uh, time up here to bat, uh, because these are psalms that I memorized oftentimes when I was a child. Um, Or early in my preaching ministry, I studied these psalms and they became a part of my heart and my soul and my mind. Now, now the thing is, as a child and probably for the first 10 years of my preaching and teaching ministry, um, I, I was in the King James Version. And, and so I memorized this verse in the King James Version, which is very different. It says, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. That's a totally different tone, isn't it? Do you see the difference between the King James and the English Standard, which we're reading out of this morning? Do you see that how it's, there's a different tone here? In, in the King James, there's this optimistic tone. In other words, I'm lifting up my eyes to the hills because this is the location where my help is located. Uh, And it's the idea that, uh, you know, the hill country, up on that hill, Jerusalem is located, and in Jerusalem is the temple, and the temple holds the presence of God, and and that's where it's at. But honestly, it's it's not a good translation. The English Standard Version, the New International, uh, these other, they have it right. Verse 1 The pilgrim is posing a question because he's concerned. He says, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? And verse 2 is where he answers the question. So so why is he concerned about the hills? You know, we, we get a, if you think about it for just a moment, you can quickly maybe connect a couple of dots. Back in May, we did a, a, a series on parables and we covered the Good Samaritan. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? A, a man is traveling from Jerusalem up in the hills down to Jericho, and, and we talked about how there was such a steep descent, and there was cutbacks, the roads cut back, and there's crevices, and there's caves, and there's blind corners, and that road was known as like the death road because of what? Gangs of criminals. Um, you see, the hills were the location of the, 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 the bad element, the, the criminal gangs, the robbers, and those who could hide out. And so when you traveled through that portion of the countryside, you were in danger. And, it, and, and this is true for the pilgrims in the time of this psalm. This was true in the time of Jesus. It had not changed in, you know, a thousand years. This is where they hung out. And so as this man is looking at this aspect of the journey, this pilgrim, he's concerned. At at, at the very worst, this is what's going on. He recognizes, I'm vulnerable. My life is in danger. Perhaps he was just traveling with his immediate family, a small group. You see, if you're in a small group, if you're by yourself, you remember like the the story of the gazelle, the video we saw of the gazelle. If you're by yourself, you're toast, right? Like the story of the good Samaritan. That guy was traveling by himself. He was set upon. He was robbed. He was almost killed. You're by yourself. You're in trouble. If you're just a small, maybe a small family unit, maybe this is what's going on here. He's a small family unit, and he's concerned what's going to happen here when we get up into the hills. From where is my help going to come when we get to these hills and we make our way up into Jerusalem? At, at best, you know, I can relate to this, middle age, or he's older, maybe he's part of a larger, maybe he has his whole clan with him. So he's not worried about criminal gangs, he's got plenty of protection, 
But you know, as you get middle-aged and older, and you know, like us Floridians, we're low country people. The specter of walking up and down all those mountains, man, that is discouraging. That is hard. This is weary. I don't know if I want to do this anymore. You know, that's the best case. Either way, he's wondering, how am I going to get through this? I need help. This week, um, Tuesday, I think, yeah, it was Tuesday, um, I made a pot of shrimp gumbo for supper. Yeah, you make you a little hungry for lunch, get you ready for lunch. Um, And uh, as I was making that pot of shrimp gumbo, I remembered a story I heard uh, many years ago of a little girl, a five-year-old girl, my name is Sally. And Sally and her mom, her mom was making shrimp gumbo for her family. And she wanted to help, as little girls will sometimes want to do. They want to help their moms, you know, make supper. And so she went in, and, and of course, if you don't know, every gumbo, you know, it starts with a what? It starts with a, a roux, you know. And, and if you don't know what a roux is, you clearly have not been regenerated by our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, no. <laughs> A roux is a mixture of flour and oil, and you begin to cook, and it takes a long time, and you stir, and you stir, and you stir for 30, 40 minutes to get this thing, and it, it, it infuses flavor and thickens up your gumbo, right? And so it requires flour, and as, as her mom begins to make the roux, she realized she didn't have enough flour, so she said, Sally, go into the pantry and bring me the bag of flour. But the problem was, like with many little children, the pantry was a very dark closet and Sally was petrified because little children, you know, they don't like going into dark places. And so Sally says, mommy, I don't want to go into the closet. Can't you go get the flour? And her mom says, Sally, I can't. I have to keep stirring the roux or it's going to be, uh, it's going to burn. Now don't be afraid. You know, Jesus will be in the dark with you and he'll help you. Now go get the flour. So Sally makes her way over to the pantry door, and she's very reluctant. It's obvious from her body language she doesn't want to do this, and she looks back at her mom when she gets to the door, and she finally gets there, and she sticks her head around the door, and she, she says, Jesus, if you're in there, would you please hand me the flower? <laughs> right? You know, little children, <laughs> the little children do not hesitate to ask for help, do they? I mean, because they, they have no shame. They recognize, I need help, and they, they ask for help every time they turn around. In fact, it's exhausting, moms, isn't it? Those, those of you who are young moms and you have little children, I mean, by the end of the day, you're just sheer exhausted. And most of them, it's because your kids are constantly asking you for something. What are they asking for? They're asking you for help. And they have no reluctance at all at asking you for help. They acknowledge their need, and they just come to you asking for help. But something happens, doesn't it? As we grow older and we grow up, we stop asking for help. In fact, it becomes almost a, a mark of you know, incompetence, a shame, if especially you know, in certain contexts, like at work or in your career, whatever it may be, if you ask for help. What's wrong? Don't you have the skills that you need? What's wrong with you? You know, and, and so there can be a stigma attached to you if you're asking for help. Our, our pride begins to build up inside of us as we get older. I'm not going to ask for help. I'll do it myself. And this is what occurs as we grow older in life. But not for children. They ask for help. They recognize the need. Now, I bet this morning 
As we look at verse one and this idea that we all need help, if I come at it from the perspective and I say, you know, there, there's been times in our lives and, you know, maybe in the past where this and that happened and you had this need where we had help. Everybody in here would be comfortable agreeing with that. Oh, yeah, there's been times in my past in my life, yeah, where, okay, yeah, I had to have help. But if I come at it from the perspective of what this scripture is actually, I think, teaching us, and that is right now where we are, every single one of us needs help. There is, at least within some of us, something that wells up and says, no, I think I'm okay. I'm doing fine, you know, my, my, my body, my physically I'm doing okay, my finances are okay, my kids, you know, aren't tearing the paneling off the walls when I, at the house, and they're doing good in school, my job and my career. I, no, I, I, I'm, I think everything's fine, really, I'm doing great. I don't really need any help. And here's the newsflash this morning. If you're here and you think everything is fine, it's not. If you think this morning that you don't need help, you do. We all need help. No matter how well your life is going right now, you need help. You know, Brian uh, referred to the verse a few moments ago as he was talking about our small group ministry. First Peter chapter 5 verse 8 gives us all the reason in the world to realize we need help. Every one of us right now, no matter how well your life is going, no matter how good the details may be, the scriptures say stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. If you think you're fine and you don't need help, you're deceived. You have an enemy who seeks to destroy you. The hills, they're there. They're right around us. They have eyes to give you that reference to that old movie from a long time ago. And there's an enemy there. We need help. And in verse 1, this is what we see. In verses 2 through 6, we see that God delights in helping us in our present time of need. He asked the question in verse 1, from where does our help come? In verse 2, he says, my help, my protection, my blessing, my guidance, my support, my assistance, my sustenance, it comes from the Lord, from Yahweh, the Creator, the one who made heaven, the abode of God and the angels, and earth, the place of humanity and all the animals. So as soon as he asks the question in verse 1, he gives the answer in verse 2, and the answer is absolute. It's the sovereign, almighty God of the universe. He's the one who stands ready to help us. And as the creator of the heaven and earth, because he's the creator of heaven and earth, any other gods with a small g, right? Any other help that we turn to from gods with a small g in this world, anything else that we're relying upon for help, 
that come from the gods of this world understand that their help is weak and it's counterfeit because all power, all help that actually accomplishes something belongs to the person who created all things. And that's why this statement is so important. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He's making it clear. This is who our God is. It's the God, the sovereign God of the universe, the all-powerful, all-knowing God. That is help. Everything else is counterfeit help. And because we know this God, because he's revealed himself in the scripture, and we know something about him, we can understand the type of help he brings. And so in verses three to six, the psalmist gives us poetical imagery to help us see the kind of help that he's bringing us right now. Practically speaking, what kind of help do we experience from God? And he uses imagery to do this, and then he does a second thing. How intensive is this help? To what extent does God help us? Let's start with the practical experience. Practically speaking, there are three ways God is helping us right now. You see it in this imagery. Look at verse 3, the first part of it. He will not let your foot be moved. He will not let you totter or stagger or slip or fall. So practically speaking, right now, God is guiding our lives. He's holding us up. He's sustaining us in everything that we do. You're here in this church this morning, not by coincidence or accident. You're here because the sovereign God is directing you and sustaining your life and holding you up. That's practically how he's helping you. You're where you are, you're married to who you are, you're in your career because the sovereign God is in control and he's holding up your life. He's sustaining you and guiding you. Secondly, verse five, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. That's an interesting image, just shade on your right hand. The right hand, that expression was kind of a euphemism and it, and it referred to good fortune. And shade is something that every Floridian can relate to, right? We love our shade. We understand how important it is. I mean, have you ever found yourself, if you're sitting in a chair in the shade, like at a picnic or whatever, and as the sun progresses, what do you do with your chair? You stay with the shade, right? You move with the shade. So, so in other words, this little expression is important because what it's saying is that God is protecting and ensuring your good fortune. Practically speaking, God is helping you by ensuring your good fortune, by bringing blessings into your life. Look at everything that you have in your life right now that you go, man, I am so thankful for this. I am thankful for my job. I am thankful for my, you know, air conditioning, my food, my clothes, my material possessions. I'm thankful for my health. I'm thankful for my children. I'm thankful for my relationship. Think about all those things in your life that are good, that you're thankful for. This is God who is the shade of your right hand. He's ensuring your good fortune. The third practical way, and this is the, the overwhelming theme of this psalm, Go back to verse 3, the second part of it says, He who keeps, this is the word, Hebrew word shamar. 
He he who watches over you, who guards you, who protects you, who preserves you from danger. He who keeps, that word keeps is important. He who keeps you will not slumber. The sun shall not strike you by day, verse 6, nor the moon by night. The most practical way, especially within the context of this psalm, that God is um, helping you is he's protecting you. He's guarding you. He's preserving your life. Um, That word keep, it's an an important word. Uh, A a couple of weeks ago, Ransom used it in his benediction at the end of Jude, where he talks about God will keep you from slipping and falling away. It's a word that's throughout the Scriptures. I'll use it this morning in in the high priestly benediction. May the Lord bless you and what? Keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his countenance towards you and give you peace. This idea of being kept by God. It's extremely important. And you see the extent of it in verse 6. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. You see, these are the opposite ends of the continuum. In other words, God is going to keep you all throughout the daylight hours and whatever comes during the daytime or whatever may happen at night and the terrors of the night, because the nighttime was a dangerous time in the ancient world. Everything in between those opposite ends of the continuum, God is going to protect you. What does that keeping look like? Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher from the 1800s, he he wrote and spoke extensively about this, and he used different uh, references. One, for example, you think about how a shepherd will keep his sheep at, you know, to keep the flock. He builds a pen and he protects them from the wolves. He guides them to green pastures so that they're able to receive their nourishment. He, he inspects them. He takes care of their wounds, right? He knows them well and he can identify what's going on with them and he nurtures them and he cherishes them. They are the center of his attention. He's keeping them against all danger. Or perhaps it's like a king, who keeps the, the, the crown jewels and the treasury and all the, the important artifacts of his kingdom, and he keeps them in a secure location under guard. And they're so important that if they're endangered, if maybe uh, there's an attack and someone tries to steal them, he'll go to war to protect and to keep those jewels and those important artifacts safe. Or perhaps like a governor who will keep his most important city in the province, and he will inspect the walls and build walls to, to keep out in attacking armies, and he'll establish treaties with other places so that there's great commerce, and he's concerned about the welfare of that city being prosperous and being healthy, where people are treated justly and with mercy because the governor wants to keep that city vibrant and vital, and he pours his energy and his life into doing so. This is what God God is doing for us. He's keeping us. So practically speaking, this is how God is helping us. Now, to what extent does he do this? The intensity behind this is also in verse 3. He who keeps, right? He who is watching over and guarding you and protecting you and preserving you will not slumber. Verse 4, behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor slumber sleep. Now, what an interesting reference 
that is. Why would he say that? In the ancient world, if you think about it, the story of in the Old Testament, Elijah on Mount Carmel, he is contending with the, the false prophets of Baal, and they're trying to determine which God is actually real. So they set up a contest where they sacrifice. And so here's all the, you know, several hundred priests of Baal, and they set everything up, and they began to chant and cry, and nothing is happening. And so Elijah, he does something that apparently is very biblical, and I'll never criticize it in the NBA or NFL again. He begins to trash talk the, the other prof, the priest of Baal. He trash talks them, and he begins to mock them, and he begins to say, hey, listen, maybe your God is asleep. Yell louder and wake him up. And so they do. They get cymbals, and they start clanging because in the ancient world, they believed that, you know, your God, you know, got tired and had to go to sleep and rest. Because, you know, when you make a God in your own image, your, your God has to sleep and has to eat and procreates and does all kinds of things. But that's what happens when you make gods in your own image. And so the point here is, no, we don't have a God made in our image. He does not sleep. His eyes are ever on us. His eyes are ever on us. He always has his attention focused on us. Folks, think about that for a second. Think about that. I mean, this is the most outstanding aspect of this psalm. Our God never slumbers or sleeps, but is keeping us. The truth here is this, that God is always thinking about you. He's always looking at you. He's always loving you. He's always watching you. How is God helping you? Like this. You are always on God's mind. Let's read this together, but let's replace the word you with me so that it sinks in this morning. Let's read it out loud. You ready? God is always thinking about me, looking at me, loving me, and watching over me. In other words, folks, there is never a moment of your life where God has forgotten you. There was never a point this week where Jesus grew weary over you because you went and you did that thing again that was wrong. There was never a moment this week where Jesus got weary and disgusted and said, can you believe this? And he turned his attention to something else. There was never a moment, Christian, there will never be a single moment in your life where God is too preoccupied with other things in the universe so that he is not thinking about you. Right now, right now, God is thinking about Mark Durham and Janice Prentice and Ed Kendrick and Stephen Nichols. Right now, God is thinking about Kathy Ingram and Ken Ingram and Lainey Beckwith and my wife. Right now, God is thinking about every single one of us at the same time. You have his absolute attention. Now, this blows my mind. You know why? Because I, I can't even think about two things at the same time. Right? 
I mean, my wife calls me up and says, stop at the grocery store and get X. And I say, no problem, baby. I got you. Are you going to write it down? I don't need to. I got it. And I say goodbye. And I mean, I don't get to the red light and I have forgotten it. Okay. So I, I, this is beyond my comprehension, but this is how grand and great our God is that there is not a single nanosecond of your life where God is not watching over you and superintending everything that is going on in your life. He loves us so much that he never takes his eyes off of us. That's how much he delights in us. And it's not the eyes that are trying to catch us doing something wrong. It's the eyes of the loving father who delights in his children and who's keeping us. Do you see the difference in the perspective here? The psalmist says in chapter 40, verse 17, when he's in the middle of saying, I need help. He says, I am poor and needy. This is who I am. And notice his answer. Yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Folks, God was thinking about you before the foundations of the world. He called you out of the mass of humanity and he decided, I'm gonna set my love upon you. I am gonna redeem you out of your sin. I'm gonna send my son to the earth to die for those sins. And I'm gonna call you to faith and give you that faith so you can believe. And I will preserve you all the way to the end and make you my child. He's been thinking about you before he ever created the heavens and the earth. And he's thinking about you right now. And he'll be thinking about you tomorrow or the next day or next year whenever that thing happens. When you say, I need help. He's been thinking about it. And he knows about it. He says in chapter 139, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, everything. That's why it doesn't do us any good to hide how we're feeling or what we're thinking from God. He already knows it all. Bring it to him. Be honest with him. Pour it out before him the good, the bad, the ugly. He already knows because his eyes are on us constantly. And he never grows weary of looking upon us. Folks, we all need help. And God delights in helping us in our present time of need. Finally, in verses 7 and 8, final application, God's help is eternal and it covers our greatest need. I know that when I talk about God watching us and being there for us and helping us. There's a natural objection that arises. No doubt there are some in here this morning who would even say, Jerry, I have experienced some horrible things in my life. It sure doesn't feel like God was watching over me at that moment in time. I know in my own life, I have often wondered, where is God? Where was God when? Have you ever asked that? Have you ever thought that? That is a natural human response to these experiences. I want you to understand something, what this passage is teaching us. This passage says that God is keeping us from evil, but keeping us from evil doesn't mean that we do not experience evil. 
It does not mean that we do not experience difficult situations. The hills are real. And what is in the hills, the dangers that are in the hills, it's real. It's actual. The promise is that we will experience these things with God by our side. The promise is that God has us in his sight, that God is preserving and walking with us and guiding us and sustaining us. The promise is that God is going to redeem this experience, whatever it may be. The promise is not that we will avoid whatever the hills may have in store. The promise is that God knows about it, He's superintending it. He's going to sustain us. He's going to keep us. He's going to walk us through the valley of the shadow of death. He will bring us out the other side. He will never abandon us. That's the promise. Christian, he sees every difficulty and he promises to see us through it. How does he do that? In the normal rhythms of life, how does he see us through? When we need help, how does he provide that help? Now, I think that for many of us, we are kind of like Sally, that little girl. We expect, you know, the mystical hand of Jesus to reach out and provide us with the bag of whatever it is that we need at that moment in time. But folks, that is not how God normally works. Now, now God can do that. God can do incredible, spectacular, miraculous things. The equivalent of the hand reaching out with the flower. But that is not the norm. The norm is very different. The norm is reflected in the core values of our church. That's what we've been talking about earlier this morning. The norm is biblical community. You see, God meets our needs most normally through other brothers and sisters in Christ. God ministers to us through his church and through his people. And that's why we stress so much in our church that it's important for us to be living authentically in biblical community with one another because it's in biblical community that we receive the genuine care that we need. And if we're not in biblical community, if we're isolated on our own, we wonder, where's God at? How different the experience is of a Christian who's in a healthy group of Christians in biblical community. And their testimony when they go through difficult times, and it's always, man, God, God was so blessed me. These people showed up in my life. And were, how different it is for that person versus the person who's all alone. God normally ministers this is the norm. Why? Because the very definition of biblical community is us being the hands and feet of Jesus to one another. That's what biblical community is. Us being the hands and feet of Jesus to one another. And this is how God helps us. His promises to keep us and to help us. It covers us in this life. But this passage ends with an even greater promise. It covers us for all of eternity. He says in verse 7, The Lord will keep you from all evil. Everything that will cause you harm, that which would destroy you, He will keep your life, and the word life there is literally your soul. He will keep your soul. 
The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time. In other words, right now in our present existence, the Lord will keep you and protect you and oversee your soul from this time forth and, and thank God for the and, and the very last word of this passage, because here's the gospel, folks, forevermore. He will keep you from this time forth and say it with me, forevermore. The gospel promise is that our Lord Jesus, who called us out before time even began and has set his eyes and his loves upon us, says, I will never let you go. Jesus says, everyone who the Father has given to me will come to me and I will not lose one of them. Not one. When you're in Christ, your security is eternal. When you've turned to him in faith, you have an eternal home and an eternal relationship that can never be broken. And it's not dependent upon your goodness and your effort. If you'll notice in this passage, it's God. The Lord will keep you. It's the Lord who does this. This is all dependent upon God. Paul says it in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's reflecting that same wording from Psalm 121. Who keeps it? God. It's God who keeps it. It's God who did the work. It's God who called us out. It's God who took on flesh and walked among us. It's God who lived the life that we were to live. It's God who died on the cross for our sins. It's Jesus, the God in the flesh, who rose from the dead and sent us his helper, the Holy Spirit, who's living in our lives right now because he has not left us alone. It's this same Lord Jesus Christ who's coming again, and he says, I am going to keep you all the way into the end. I'll not lose one of you. That's the promise of this psalm and of the gospel itself. My friend, do you know, have you experienced this promise? It doesn't happen unless you know Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have such a helper as you. Lord, you are beyond our imagination in power and glory and in might. How you can be watching over us and thinking about us never taking our, uh, your eyes off. How it can be true that there's not a nanosecond of our life that is not under your guardianship and your care, that is not ordered by you and preserved by you. This is beyond our understanding, but that is the God that you are. Thank you for revealing yourself in this way. Thank you for calling us into your family through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray for the one here this morning who may not yet be in this family. May even this morning, as they've heard this message, a yearning be created in their heart to know you in this way, to have that type of security. In your name we ask these things, Jesus. Amen.